Hi, this is Lynette Nylander, host of NTS Radio's new podcast, Sounds and Style. Each week, I'll be chatting with some of culture's most influential figures, exploring how music and style links what we wear with who we are. Expect deep cuts into musical genres and fashion subcultures as my guests and I look at how the music they love has informed the work they make today. This season, I've been chatting with Lily Allen, Martine Rose, Mel Ottenberg, and many more. New episodes drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Don't Assume. I'm Zakia, and in this podcast, I'll be talking to pioneers, disruptors, and innovators about their lives and music. In that time, the outside world was like, Mm-mm, they are the reason all these things are happening. There were stabbings, there was drugs, there was guns, there was violence happening around us, but that was always there. It's just that now we're part of that world, but we're taking ourselves out and becoming somebody else. They were just looking as we were still part of that because we still lived there, because we still associated with friends there. I'm in the NTS studio in London with the first lady of UK Garage, a member of So Solid crew, Lisa Mafia. Originally from Brixton, South London, she grew up with a crew of 30-plus boys from Battersea who found mainstream chart success as a UK Garage act with serious crossover appeal. So Solid's hits include Oh No, 21 Seconds and They Don't Know, and Lisa was front and centre on all of them. She went on to enjoy a solo career in her own right and is now a successful businesswoman who has stayed true to her roots in the ever-vital UK garage scene. I grew up with the sounds of UK garage and I love its distinctly black British flavour. From its sound system culture influences to the flamboyant outfits people wore at the raves, often head to toe in Iceberg and Versace. It was truly a DIY scene and today the spirit of UKG is going strong. For me and many others who grew up in the UK in the noughties, Lisa Mafia and So Solid are icons, and I'm so excited to sit down with her for this Don't Assume interview. Such a pleasure to be talking to you today. You, you've literally been the soundtrack to my uh, to my teenage years. So, yeah, really, really excited to have you here in the studio. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you just about your early days, right? Can you describe a young Lisa Mafia? What was you like? What were your dreams? What were the kind of key moments in your early days that set you up for your career? Oh, my goodness. So, do you know what? What set me up? The first thing that set me up is that the fact I was a tomboy. I was complete tomboy, never wore heels, never had my hair out, never wore makeup, didn't want to show a cleavage, didn't want to wear a short skirt. I was always in my tracksuit and trainers. And I ended up with one of the biggest boy groups in the world. <laughs> We're so solid being 30 plus. All boys, I was the only girl in that. And being a tomboy, that set me up. If I didn't have those early experiences of stealing a, a moped with the boys, <laughs> I know, bad, I know, put me in cuffs, but I did. That's what I did because I was hanging with the boys, the naughty boys at that. I was 
a boy. I was not a girl. The very first time I actually put on a dress or a skirt or makeup or extensions in my hair was 21 Seconds Video in 2001. And other than that, I never ever put it on. I didn't. And I think I never ever thought I'd be a musician. But in, when I think about it now... Growing up, I was always recording myself and listening to music. My mum was very much into reggae music and into soul and revival. So I was always listening and recording myself, but I didn't realise that would one day turn into a career, you know? It was just a hobby. So growing up, I think I was like on the, on the path that was already written and didn't even realise. <laughs> So you grew up in South London, right? You grew up I in did. Battersea. Is that no, no. I grew up in Brixton. You grew up in Brixton. I grew up in Brixton, but because I was a tomboy, I followed the boys up to Battersea, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> I used to get my little BMX out and ride up to Battersea to see all the boys and sing on the corner and chill out with them. I don't know why, but I followed where the boys were. Not that I was into the boys. I wasn't ever fancied by the boys because I looked like a boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I acted like a boy. So I was either called mini math, which was because I was younger than everyone. And I was also just like one of the lads. It was like, it was so weird. And now I look back, I'm like, who was I? <laughs> but do you feel like it was that, that persona or that identity that made them sort of respect you in a way that you could become part of the group rather than one of the girls on the outside? Very much so, because all of my girlfriends ended up being excluded out of the team of boys because they either fancied, the boys fancied one of them and they didn't want nothing to do with them or the girls fancied one of them and they had a girlfriend so they got rid of them, you know? But mm. I always ended up on my own like, why isn't Sally You've been Barbara and June coming with us. And they're like, well, because they're girls. I'm like, but then why am I here? And they're like, because you're one of the boys. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so you mentioned a little bit about the sort of influences of like your mum's music and stuff. Mm. What music were you listening to like growing up as a teenager? Like, did you go out to raves? Like, what was your kind of musical world at that time? For you that don't know out there, I am mixed race. I am... Uh, Jamaican heritage and uh, Italian and British. Um, so I'm like a jukebox. My, I would say my white family's house, they were all listening to Pet Shop Boys, Duran Duran, Bros, Kylie Minogue, like all the pop chart Pet Shop Boys and them. That was regular in my white family's house. In my black family's house, it was all Marvin Gaye, Louis Van Joss, Whitney Houston. So I was like, a jukebox. I you, there was no track you could play me, and even now that you could play me, and I'm going, oh, I don't know that. I would either I've heard that before. I could sing it word for word. So I think that's where my music influence has actually come from, and the love of music has actually come from is being very versatile in the styles of music that I listened to growing up. Mm. And were you were you a raver? I was a raver. I was a terrible raver. <laughs> I've been a raver since I was 12. Wow. I used to go what we called a shabine. A shabine mm. is like the windows are blacked out with plastic bags. The party starts at six in the evening and it does not finish and probably until six even next day. Stone Love, Reggae and Revival, Bashman, what we'd call Bashman. That's what I was listening to. That's what I grew up into. And, and that's what started my raving journey. I was 13, I think, and I tried to get into Astoria with my little USA jumper on and my little leggings for Jungle <laughs> Fever. Yes, I was there. Um, I used to be trying to get into the, what was that club called? It was some, it was a dive. Now when I look back, I'm like, what did I even want in there? But it was the fact that it was a club mm. and I was 
sort of itching to be part of the rave scene, to feel one grown up and two to just experience the music loud and know what it is to party and dance and show off your moves. But I was only 12, 13. But I got in there after a year or so of trying, I got in there. <laughs> so yeah, you've painted this quite like diverse musical yeah. landscape. Then how did you become officially a part of So Solid Crew? As I said, when I was growing up, I was always one that loved music. I was always singing along to things. And I probably did that quite a bit in front of my friends. Um, G-Man was my partner at the time. And he was the one that said, you're going on this track. And I was like, on a track? What are you talking about? What does that even mean? Like, on a track. And they had me sing the chorus for a very first established track, which was Oh No Sentimental Things. And... Fortunately for me, and I say fortunately because it was not part of my existence to be a musician, but fortunately for me, the boys were very much music orientated and they wanted to be on radio, they wanted to be MCs, they wanted to be musicians. And they were slowly growing this buzz around So Solid Crew, which back then was called SOS. Think about it. <laughs> I'm like, imagine we was called SOS, like Lisa Murphy from SOS. <laughs> but anywho, we were called SOS back in the day and they made this track. And fortunately, we was going over to, on holiday to a place called Iron Napa. Hey. Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> in Cyprus. And we were taken over stages, literally just give me the mic, give me the mic, give me the mic, let me have a go, let me have a go. And just getting up there and slowly and surely they started to form, the boys started to form their own nights, Dan the Man, Romeo and PDS. They were the first to go out there and first to establish So Solid on Ayanapa's turf um, and started putting on these raves and we had this record, um, Oh No Sentimental Thing, we had that record and we was playing it every, every now and then and it just so happened there was an A&R in one of the raves just on these holidays. And he uh, heard it and he, he said to the boys, when you get back, we're going to sign you. So when the boys come back to me and said, we're going to get signed, you know, I'm like, what the hell does signed mean? But you know, you <laughs> act like you know because you're one of the boys. So I'm like, yeah, you see it? I'm just sick, fam. Like not even realising exactly what that meant. And within six months, we were signed to Relentless Records, our very first record deal. Um, and shortly after, I was signed as a solo act by Sony. Wow. How old were you then? Um, I was 19 when it all kicked off. When Glenn from uh, Relentless Records had found us in Ayanapa, he actually told us all how to get management, how to do things, how to do things a bit more professionally. Um, and we was getting these odd gigs here and there, like one off here, one off there. But it was only for this track, even though there was all these other tracks that had been made. It was only for this track. And it was myself and Romeo only on it. And we'd been sent out to different <laughs> events. And I went to my very first event. Now, just picture me going into a place called, what is it called at King's Cross, that club? Scala. Scala. Going into Scala and them announcing us. And they said, this is the brand new group on the underground. They're making waves. They go by the name of So Solid Crew. It's Romeo and Lisa Marie. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm already, like, so scared to even touch a mic because I'd never touched a mic in my life. Um, only in the studio like this. 
Uh, I never held a microphone, so I was trembling. Then we get on stage, and there's all these people around us, and they're all like, what we would say, boo, back then it was like a celebration, like boo, boo. And everyone's doing that, and then they give us this one mic. Now oh, there's wow. one mic between Lisa Marie, which is Lisa <laughs> Mafia, and Romeo, and and we've got to share this mic, and it's it's just the little things, the sentimental things in life, and they're like, oh no, Romeo. Mm. So we're now sharing <laughs> this mic like this. So I'm like literally touching Romeo's cheek, <laughs> shaking like a leaf, trying to get the vocals out to oh no, sentimental things. It was a shambles, an absolute shambles, and that just kind of set the path of me being a nervous musician because it was it it just frightened the life out of me it just as I said I was never born a musician I loved music but I wasn't a born trained musician I was just me and the only thing that was my vote of confidence was being around a load of boys that were really confident and you know they're proper like lions <laughs> they're coming through <laughs> they're taking their spot for me it was it's a journey it's been a journey mm. mm-hmm. well tell me a bit more about what that sort of experience was like so you were 19 you were kind of nervous it wasn't what you <laughs> expected and then you were suddenly on this kind of roller coaster of like mm. fame and mainstream success like mm. How did that feel for you at the time? At the time, I hated it. I'm going to be brutally honest. I absolutely hated maybe the first five years of my career because I was in demand. I was very famous. I was shot to fame within a year. Um, By 21, I was signed solo. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know who I was and I didn't find my identity as a musician. But all I had was the support and encouragement from So Solid Crew Boys, which was great. But it still, in my inner confidence, was shaking like a leaf. I literally had zero confidence. Um, so I had to learn how to be a musician. So a lot of the amazing things I fortunately got to do, including shooting for the centre page of Vogue, British Vogue, to performing with Christina Aguilera, to going on tour, to... You know, all these amazing Jar on a Shanti tour. Like, there were so many things that I was getting to do, being on my own solo career as well, and being put to the forefront of So Solid Crew and Lisa Mafia because of all the con- controversy that was going around So Solid and being banned and all the rest of it. What you would talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> but with all of that, I had to find my identity in the midst of actually becoming a musician and solo artist. And fortunately, I was just, I think my, I think my shyness and my sort of humbleness of not knowing my power in my position is what helped me in some sense. Because a lot of people help pull out their hand in an olive branch say, do you want some help? Don't worry, you really need to do this. Oh my God, you look great. So it gave me that, you know, started to build up this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. But I was a shy, timid tomboy, so I had to become who I am. Now, a lot of, because it was a very, you know, male-dominated scene in general, and then, of course, within that, you're in this group that's, like, 30-man <laughs> plus. But you're talking about it in a very positive way, so you didn't feel like it was difficult then being the only female part oh my gosh, in no. the group, in the scene. Listen, when you don't have someone to go to the loo with you in the club because they're all boys, <laughs> that's tired, you know? <laughs> 
uh, being the only girl was tough because I didn't have anyone to turn to to get that womanly sistery advice i only had the boys which were very quite ignorant about girl problems you know <laughs> they're like mm. just get on with it you know just so like it's get on with it so for me it was tough because i didn't have anyone to support my needs as a woman so i just learned learned how to be tough and sometimes tough don't get you anywhere when you're a woman, you know. Sometimes they want you to be girl, extra girly, but I just didn't have that. I, I was taught by boys and I was also like a tomboy and I was also just not able, not knowing, not equipped to be a musician. So it was just a massive learning curve. So a lot of the great things that I'd done in the very beginning, I've forgotten or I haven't appreciated as much as I would now. So I'm fortunate to become 21 years later and still be able to do some incredible things and meet some awesome people. But a lot of what I'd done in the very beginning was a blur because I was literally just getting through it. <laughs> now, I remember you speaking about, you know, this sort of hustle and this sort of, you know, obviously you made it to this mainstream success. You got the yeah. label, like probably much more than a lot of the UK garage artists, crossover artists at that time. Mm-hmm. You were the ones who really made it big, but mm-hmm. you had to really hustle to get there, right? I remember you talking about having to sell records at the yeah. back of the van. Honey, if they, if these artists would have had to have done what we had to do, they would have quit a long time ago. There will be no musicians left, <laughs> honestly, because from cutting our own records to selling our own records out of a backfiring little van that we got on the auction for 200 quid, (laughs) to selling hundreds of thousands. I mean, Bound for the Reload sold 100,000 units before it even got signed. That's how. Even I think how. But it was myself that was out the back of the van saying, yeah, giving this out, selling them, like being a proper salesman. Like, what the hell is this? I didn't get paid enough for this. (laughs) But it was part of the journey. And I'm so glad we did it because it proved to us that with that, that's why we are still alive today, 21 years later, and able to perform week in, week out because we'd done our groundwork and we'd done real groundwork. From just like even making a record was a task <laughs> from finding the right studio that will house us to actually getting it mixed and uh, uh, mixed down and cut that was a whole journey that we did all by ourselves with no professional help it was done by ourselves hence why there's 30 plus in so solid because we had in the end we recruited our own people to be able to do all of the jobs we knew from one record how to do you know it was easier that way. <laughs> and it's kind of mad. It was such a different time. And this was like the time of pirate radio yeah. and no, no internet. It's yeah. kind of like mind boggling to think yeah. how different it was. But do you feel like you were part, I guess you were part of this whole DIY kind of ecosystem. Fans had to wait a week to see us again in the next issue of the magazine. And if we wasn't doing enough that month, we probably wouldn't be in the next issue. So they'd wait to the next one to get a poster to put on their wall. That was the only way they could see visuals of us. There were so many of us in So Solid Crew. Not all of us could get a, a line in that, in that magazine. So they would have to wait for Romeo one week, Lisa <laughs> the next month, you know, Mega Man the next, you know, Asher D the next, you know, they had to wait on us. I think that's beautiful for what we had created at the time. We didn't realise that it was going to be that simple to just get access to us just like that (laughs) I could only imagine how big So Solid would be now if we had internet back then Mm. literally it would be as big as the Kardashians (laughs) (laughs) 
What about Pirate Radio? Do you feel like that was a kind of big part of the kind of So Solid story? Pirate Radio was the beginning of So Solid. Before we had cast a record, before we had touched a stage, Pirate Radio was our platform. That was where we announced who we were. That was our newspaper, you know, it was our Instagram. Um, and we had our own radio show. We had, to <laughs> we had to go up to the point of rigging our own radio stations, you know, putting our actual rigs up to get to the public. We're aerials on the roof, for anyone that don't know what a rig is, they put their aerials on tower blocks. And then I can't remember TD, what the fuck was that? There was a there was a company that used to come down and rip them down. <laughs> There's a couple of would be like, oh my God, we got to do that all again. <laughs> I can't even remember what they called, TDA or something like that. One of them nightmares. You could put them up and within, they had transmitters to find out where these illegal rigs were. And they used to go up on that tower and they used to rip it down. So we'd be halfway through a set and it'd be like, done. And we were like, oh, we have to do it again, you know? So that is the home of So Solid. And I think, again, another reason why we are part of life now because we became a lifestyle. You would have to tune in, find a station. You'd have to wait until that rig's been put up. You have to find out what station it's, what number it's going to be on your dial because we wouldn't know, they wouldn't know. We'd only transmit just to South London and then we'd try and get a better rig to get a little bit further out of South London. So, yeah, So Solid was made by Pirate Radio. Yeah, it's so incredible what what you all achieved in that kind of DIY manner. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there are people talk about the way that the UK garage scene kind of got shut down, mm-hmm. right? And it was a lot of people from not from privileged backgrounds, mm-hmm. right? From the hood mm-hmm. who built this stuff up themselves. They built <laughs> yeah. themselves up and then they kind of got tore down, yeah. right? Yeah. What was your take on on that? Did you feel like the scene kind of got shut down deliberately? It did indeed. I mean, we came with it, as I said, I keep saying it's like a lifestyle. So we focused on a movement. So it wasn't just about music. It was about our fashion and we had dogs and we had a look and a way of presenting ourselves and we used to move in a convoy of cars. It must have been like... What the hell is this? Like to the outside world, they're like, what is this? A gang? Is this what is this bad or is this good? We don't really understand it. And whilst we were building this lifestyle, people were following. But obviously, we were musicians. The outside world was doing what they're doing. So they kind of they were sort of like it's like a religion, like where they follow, but they don't abide by all the rules. Mm. Um, and yes, it did get torn down because of our following. We have come from the real hood, is what I like to call it, the real ghetto, where poverty is rife. And as much as we were starting to become famous and had this massive profile, on the backhand of that, we were still living in the same area we grew up with poverty. So our lifestyles started to look very glossy and very rich and very lucrative. And... People within poverty sometimes don't want to try and work towards getting themselves in a better position. They'd rather take it. So whilst we had to protect ourselves, so did our industry. And being out on platforms and at parties and attracting people from poverty into our parties, things went down, Mm. basically. And I understand that... The world around us were looking at it like we're the bad and we're the cause. But 
I think we also needed a lot more protection than what we had because we were left to our own devices. And as I said, we wasn't rich, we were famous. Just hear that, like, we're definitely famous, but we definitely was not rich. Mm. So we were left in poverty-stricken areas where all sorts go down. (laughs) And the more attention that we were getting, the more glossy our life looked, which made us, we was getting bigger platforms, but we still weren't being paid because it was all promo time. It was all Mm. to promote ourselves and get ourselves out there and build ourselves up to become richer, to become paid by the top dogs, you know? But they weren't willing to pay for us at the very beginning. So we had to live through that. And in that time, the outside world was like, "Mm -mm, they are the reason all these things are happening. There were stabbings, there was drugs, there was guns, there was violence happening around us. But that was always there. It's just that now we're part of that world, but we're taking ourselves out and becoming somebody else. They were just looking as we were still part of that because we still lived there because we still associated with friends there, you know? So, yeah, I understand it because they had to protect, but then at the same time, it wasn't our fault and we got penalised for it, which is a shame. Because I guess there was sort of... It was happening on different levels, right? There was obviously Mm. the sort of media and the tabloids and all of that thing, all of that kind of world that Mm. had their part to play. But then there were also people within the UK garage scene, Mm. right, that felt that what So Solid brought, the energy they brought, the lyrics, everything Mm. that you were kind of bringing to their scene, which before had just sort of all been about, like, (laughs) raving and, you know, just the, like, you know, live for the weekend, was sort of bringing a different energy and people weren't happy about it. Yeah. I don't think people were were not happy. They just didn't understand it. And that's like any rejuvenating any genre. They, Garage was always there. Garage has been there way before us. But we brought gloss, fame and a lifestyle to it. We brought what is now Garage. All these new artists that they're all still listening to has been formed from the transition from normal garage to so solid garage. Mm. We done that transition and they're appreciating it now. But at the time it's like... They don't know, they don't like it. And until it's actually big, they're like, I'm not going to get with it until it's big. And then when it's big, we want to be all over it. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there, I was there. Exactly, (laughs) I was in that ring, yeah, I was there. I was one of the first MCs that done that. No, you wasn't, honey. Because even if you was, no one was listening. But they did listen to So Solid. But the media is the worst because the media, as much as they would slag you off one day saying they are nothing but trouble and we don't want them and they're banned and we hate them, we'll never interview them again... If you had a successful one second with another celebrity or a successful record or went somewhere really cool, they wanted to plug you and say, look at her outfit, how wonderful she looks. So it's it's the same. It's just that we were living the life as well as trying to be famous. Um, So we had to protect ourselves on a little journey, but then they were still penalising us for things that were happening with or without us because we were from the same place. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about change and people resisting change. Mm -hmm. And when I think about So Solid, I think about this sort of lineage from like that more traditional UK garage sound to So Solid, then through to the early grime sound, dubstep, and then through to the sort of UK drill stuff now. Do you see yourself as part of that lineage and legacy? I've never actually seen it myself, but I do know that we gave voices to black musicians in the UK. So if that's what they want to accredit us for, then yeah, we're there. But the sound of the music now, we were still, as much as we would be talking gangster and talking smack, we still had a lot of melody and a lot of upbeat, upbeat tempo stuff. This drill stuff is dark. Whoa! 
This drill stuff is dark. It's dark and it's scary. I don't know whether I got old, but I don't, this drill stuff is scary. But then there are some musicians that are actually doing what So Solid did and just making music. Some of them are being dark and some of them are making great music. So I don't put drill down as a no completely across the board, but there are different elements of it. And that's the same as what So Solid did. And the only difference I think with So Solid 2 now is that we still was in the party scene. Mm. These guys are sitting in the bedroom talking about kill your gran, dark and underground. Now, we were out in the rave having good time, dressing up, looking smart and, you know, having a good time with our music. These guys don't look like they're having a good time. <laughs> they don't look like they're having so much fun. <laughs> so... I want to I want to hear about your sort of your solo career and your first record that you released in 2003. Mm-hmm. How was that journey? You, know, you talked about being a bit kind of shy and yeah. a bit nervous. So breaking apart from the group in that way, how did that feel? Do you know what? It was actually the best thing that could have happened to me because it I had to have confidence by then. I had to do this. I had to become the musician. I had to dress up and and start, you know, getting a sort of identity. Um, so it was the best thing that could have happened to me. It's the best thing that could have happened. The first time going on tour, I'd done the Blues and Soul tour in 2003. And I was the headline. I couldn't believe it. I was actually headlining Estelle, who is ended up in America mm. with Kanye West. Shola Amma was on there. Lioness was on there. Stush was on there. And I was headlining that because I was the only one with a signed record deal at the time. And that gave me the confidence. I was like, I'm actually, there was some incredible talent on that show. And I was headlining that setup of five or six different women on it. And now I look back and I think, look at Estelle, she made it. Look at Shiesty, she's done sick. You know, look at Lioness, she's done sick. Shola, I'm a blessed, like that's my sis. And to look back and think, oh my gosh, I've done that. And at the time, it was one of the very things I needed to say, I need to be told, Lise, it's fine, you've got this, you can do it. This is your opportunity, I'm giving it to you. My, I need a chance. I need to be given the, the opportunity, the biggest opportunity to say, okay, I know they like me, it's okay, I can relax. It's okay, I can enjoy this. And the more I enjoy something, the better I, I be. And that's been my journey throughout my career. There was a time where I tried to get on certain shows and with the stigma around So Solid Crew, they were doing dumb things like I would turn up to a gig, hardly nothing come back. Then we used to wear six-inch skirts. They were like a belt. <laughs> it was like a belt, like tiniest skirt and the tiniest see-through top, you know, like a sheer La Perla top or whatever it be. And I'd have nothing on and they'll get to the door and search me. I'm like, what the hell are you looking for? Well, we're looking for weapons. We're looking. What well, I'm, I'm in this? Mm. Well, I can't even breathe <laughs> in this skirt. You're looking for weapons, but it was that stigma that kind of disheartened me and made me think: Do I really want to do this? Do I? Is this who I want to be? Is this who I want to be? Is this what I want to be labelled for in life? Because I stand for more, you know. Um, and it, that started to drive me out of my career again, branching out to start helping other artists. Um, so I made my own record label, Mafia Records. Um, I started my agency back then, 18, 19 years ago now. Um, started my agency and it started to make me feel like, actually, I think I need to use my platform, what they're giving to me and putting me on this pedestal. Use it while I'm here 
to elevate other talent to come through because I wasn't comfortable of where they were trying to position me. So I opened my own record label and I signed my very first group, New Star, and then I've signed Tyler Daly. I was glad I used my pedestal that they had put me on, that they would easily rip me down any moment. I used it at that point to help other artists. That's what kept me going as a solo artist. And that's where I stayed for many years, 18 years now. I imagine that must have been like quite a transition, right? Mm. From that very DIY, you're doing it yourself, yeah. you're in control of your image, everything. Yeah. You know, the early days of So Solid to them being put forward as a solo artist yeah. and then people trying to mould you and shape yeah. you. Yeah. You said you weren't happy with them, the direction people were trying to push you in. What direct direction was that? No, so creatively, one thing that So Solid held on to throughout all of our careers is that we had full creative control. Mm. So they couldn't tell us what music to make or how to make it or what to sound like, who to work with. I mean, I sold 90,000 in my first three days of my very first single and that went on to hundreds of thousands for the success I was selling to the public the media was trying to hold us back they were trying to pigeonhole us as to be dangerous and to be not worthy and don't deserve the positions we were getting and then they started you know labeling us as urban artists mm. and things like that and that's when I felt like hold on a second I don't deserve this I'm we DIY'd ourselves here. We've grafted to get here. And then you're going to tell us that we're not good enough? So I just decided, okay, from that day forth, is that I'm going to be out here to help other people and do right by them as much as I can, or at least allow them to exhaust my platform to elevate themselves. Do you think a lot of that negative media coverage was racist? Do you think it had a racial element to it? Because you were one of the first massive, like, black British pop stars yeah. on the scene at that time. And then, as you say, you get labelled with urban this and da da da. And then, of course, there was that, what was it, 696 form, right? That was kept come in to... Let me just kiss my teeth after <laughs> them, mum. Listen, that was the worst. Can that. you explain what it was people who don't know? Who 696, for people that don't know, every single person that you ever move with or ever go on any platform with, they had to be police-checked, a name, address, date of birth. If you was ever associated with any crime or any affiliate that was into crime, you would probably not get uh, be allowed to, to perform. And that what went on for years. And they targeted specific genres, right? They, so, they targeted yeah. black British musicians. Yeah. So there was elements of race. My first time experiencing racism and colour was in music. I was always the last to be chosen on a TV show. You'd find that a TV show would cast me for a show and I'd be one of the last two black people to be chosen from an all-white cast. So I felt it there. Not that it bothered me because I'm like, pay me. <laughs> pay me, I'll do it <laughs> if I want to do it, you know. So I, it doesn't bother me, but... Yeah, I know racism is there. I want to put it all down to that because I know it's racism. I know there is elements of racism, but I also feel like sometimes people from the ghetto don't help themselves mm. because they'll get mixed up in trying to be a musician but also trying to be hood gangster. You do one or the other. You stay in the hood, do your thing, whatever you want to do over there, or you become famous and you leave it alone, you know? And that's the same in any world. I'm not talking just about fame. I'm, I'm talking about any job. You can't be working in Barclays Banks and thinking you're going to go and smoke weed and stand on the corner on your weekends. You just can't. It's one or the other. Mm. So there's, there's, there is an element of racism within music against us as So Solid. There was, but I also think some people didn't help themselves, you know? So I don't... I try best not to even, you know, induce that. I know that I represent myself well. 
I know that if racism ever comes my way in my career, I know how to deal with those type of people. I would never stand for it or allow it to slide. I will pull you up, <laughs> you know. But at the same time, I think it's about leading a good, positive life as well. Yeah. I love what you were saying earlier about the fact that So Solid was still music for the club, right? It was yeah. like, and it still had that kind of celebratory, like fun weekend vibe. And, you know, when you look back at pictures from those days, I mean, that fashion, everything is still so kind of influential today. Mm. Um, you know, were you kind of aware of that at the time? Like, what was your, what was your kind of ritual for getting out and getting ready at that time? Mine was just pull on your glad rags because I was like a boy. <laughs> I think I'm just about put lip gloss on. But I tell you what, right? Garage, one thing that I love so much about garage music and what I love so much about black people in garage music, we did not play when it comes to outfits. We used to go down to Pabitos or to Selfridges and get our brand new outfit every week for the rave. Like, we used to go from Machino, Iceberg, Versace, whatever it is, we used to be wearing the top dollar outfit we wasn't allowed to wear trainers back then. It was shoes only. So slidey shoes, like wedding shoes for the boys <laughs> and heels for the girls or flat, nice shoes. You couldn't wear any trainers. There was no trainers allowed. It was a suit and tie type of attire for a garage rave. So boys used to come in their waistcoats and their little straight trousers and proper shoes, Patrick Cox, back then. It was like a thing that like everyone had to get dressed up. That's one thing I loved about it. And I think also that, again, was part of the lifestyle of being in, in garage, the garage genre, and that's where I say it's upsetting because they it, that the the industry pigeonholed us into an urban category. But when you looked at the urban category, it was just all black people. We had our own lifestyle built, you know, with the shoes and the bowler hats. And even when we got to the tracksuit days, they could only wear designer trainers. It was like a lifestyle. So it was so sad to then be pigeonholed into the urban industry with anyone black because it kind of diluted what we had built. And that's, that's sad. So that's how I used to get ready. Go selfages, go probitos and get the sickest, loudest, colourful outfit you can find. <laughs> But even though they tried to shut it down, right, yeah. UK Garage is still, like, living and breathing today, yeah. right? You don't yeah. have to... Anyone who drives around in London will yeah. see all the Back to 95. Yeah, yeah. You know, all the raves. 51st day, yeah. Back to 95, Garage Nation. Yeah, they're still there. Yeah, and how does that feel now when you're sort of performing at those events? Like, who's there? Is it the people that were there at the time? Is it a new audience? Are they still wearing their, you know, their Moschino, like, head-to-toe outfits, or has it changed? It's changed so much, but it's the same. Because Back to 95, you'll see all the old school heads. 51st date, you'll see all the old school heads. Garage Nation is full of fetuses and embryos. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the under 25s that have grown up in households with sisters, moms, dads, brothers that all were into garage. So they're now into garage. And, and that's what I love because filling on 21 seconds, filling on, oh no, and everyone still knows it, word for word. But when you're looking out there, you're like, you wasn't even born. <laughs> How? You're, you weren't even born. 
That's the power of So Solid. It's the power of Garage and So Solid Garage, I'm telling you. What about what about Garage Brunch? You know about the Garage Brunch? I do my own Garage Brunch. Oh, you, you know? do it? I do one called Old School Garage Brunch. I pull it on every bi-monthly and it's at, at um, Clapham Grand. Um, and I've been doing that for a while and it's sick. Like, I love it. I love it. Because, again, it's nine years. I've been doing the boat party on the Thames. I've been doing my brunches. I do a festival. I do club nights. I've been doing them because it's still alive. And... I'm a businesswoman now. <laughs> I won't make my money. <laughs> I've actually launched my own rum called Mafia Rum. It's a wicked spice rum. Um, everyone go get it. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm doing that. That's been my main focus. Um, I'm doing loads of events, putting on my own events and running my agency and House of Mafia as well, which is my interior company. So I've got a whole load going on. But one thing I have got is happiness. And I think that's key to a great life. I've just noticed that garage, people get scared of putting on garage every week but i'm telling you now garage will never die it's the one british music that remains our own without the cheesiness it's a corner still there and even like people's kids are now getting into it so i think it's going to be forever lasting if there was one moment that you could go back to from that era what would it be oh my god it would be um was it a brits it was the Brits because I didn't run up to the mic and talk, but everyone ran to the mic and spoke. And I wish I just said, Mama, I actually love you. Look, I've done it. Because it was that one time where I was like, I recognised that, oh, my God, we like, it's not just our fans. It's bigger than that, you know. This big industry like the Brits has recognised us. It literally could bring a tear to my eyes. My mum recorded everything on VCR. She's got... Every, I'm like, Mum, you better hurry up and get them off of there because they're going to disintegrate. <laughs> <laughs> you know? She's got everything. But I wish I got up to that mic and said, Mum, look, we did it. Because my mum was the one that enticed us to buy that backfiring van for £200 at an auction to sell our records out the back of. And had we not done that, we may not have been here. So I'm very grateful to that. <laughs> Out to mum. Out to yeah. mum. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Oh, such a joy. Don't Assume is an NTS podcast produced by Lizzie King with sound recording by Fabrice Robinson, edited by Femi Oriogan Williams, and mixed by Felix Stock. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review in your podcast app. To support NTS, become an NTS supporter today. Head to nts.live forward slash supporters. NTS.